Thank you to our praise team. Good to see everyone today. Good to see all of you. Um, I know it's a little bit wet outside. We're looking forward to having a great afternoon despite that. Uh, it's this time of year, right? It's cool. It's a little bit wet, and it reminds us of fall. So I'm excited about um, that. Uh, we've got little people in amongst us today, and so we're excited to have y'all as well. And I um, hope that you uh, gather a lot from being a part of where the big people worship on Sundays. We have been in a service traveling through looking at the life of the great man of God, the Apostle Peter, and we looked at uh, some different episodes in the life of Peter during the summer, and then we got to uh, the letter of 1 Peter, and then last week we began an introduction into the second letter that Peter writes, 2 Peter, and uh, today we're going to go a little bit further with that. I'm we're still kind of in introductory mode, and I think you'll see why, because one of the important issues that Peter raises is this issue of mass cataclysmic destruction. And the question becomes, well, which cataclysmic destruction is Peter talking about? Is he talking about the 70 AD destruction, or is he talking about a destruction that will come at the end of time? And so I think I have a diagram for you all that shows two passages that one talks about the destruction of uh, Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 24, and the other passage talks about the return of Christ at the end of time, and that's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That was a passage we talked about last week. I also showed you a timeline last week, so let me give you just a little bit of review here. I, we showed you a timeline last week that reveals a philosophy of history um, of how the Bible sees human history. Um, most other religions of the world see um, time as cyclical, um, that it's going no place, but rather the Bible sees a clear beginning and a clear ending to human history. And so that beginning began at creation, and it will come to an end, or the end of time, at the return of Christ. There are two ages, overlapping ages, of human history. The first of those is the age of the law, or we might think of as the Old Testament age. And then when Jesus came into the world, he inaugurated the second age, or the church age, the age of the Spirit. Again, this will come to an end, the, church, the age that we live in right now, and we get to the end of time. And again, the question is before us with, we, with regard to Second Peter is when he talks about this destructive event, is he referring to the end of the first age, the age of the law, 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem, or is he thinking more in mind way down the line from his point of view, uh, thousands of years off into the future when Jesus returns. And so we'll treat that somewhat today. We'll do some more treatment of it again next week and hopefully arrive more and more closely at a response. Um, our text for today comes from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. These are the verses that Peter discusses this coming destruction. All right, here we go. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You may be seated. Um, all right, so let's kind of dive into these verses before I do just two quick announcements. One is that uh, next Sunday we're having a service of baptism. If the Holy Spirit has been nudging your heart, 
uh, toward wanting to be baptized, um, just shoot me a text this week, lob me an email, give me a phone call, and let me know, and we'll make sure uh, that, uh, that we include you in that baptism service. So again, that's going to be available next week, next Sunday. Um, also, the other thing I want to let you know about uh, was that Fledge Fiamingo is going to be with us next Sunday. Am I right in saying that? Yeah. So Fledge, is, uh, he leads Sun Safaris. Um, he takes mission trips to South Africa. He's from South Africa. And so he'll be sharing after the service next Sunday for anyone that would be like, like to participate in a missions trip next year. And so he'll be here to uh, share with you. So just be prepared to stay for a little bit after service next Sunday to hear from Fledge. It's not a commitment. It's just coming to hear what, he, um, what, what that trip will be all about. All right, so let's take a look at these verses. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Uh, when we look at this verse, it's, again, it seems like Peter is talking about a gigantic cataclysmic destruction. I mean, you look at those words and it sounds like that's the end of the world as we know it. Well, let's kind of take, let's dive into that. Verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now let's stop right there. We noticed this, um, this statement last week. Uh, Paul describes the end of the world like a thief as well. Uh, we encountered this imagery of a thief coming like a thief would come in the night. And so Peter's saying that when this destruction comes, it'll be like a thief who's, who a thief doesn't call up and say, I'll be there at 1030 or you can expect me along in just a little while. No, a thief doesn't let you know that the thief is coming. The thief comes as a complete and total surprise. And so Peter's saying here that this destruction, which is going to be visited on you, on his, on his, his readers, is going to be like um, a, a total surprise. There'll be no warning. And then Peter describes the event itself. He says, still in verse 10, Jesus shows up and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. In the Greek, the word that's translated roar is the um, word uh, roizedon, and it indicates a loud crashing sound. He says that the heaven will pass away with a loud crashing sound. Now, what does he mean by the word heavens? And this is where some of the debate begins to take place. Um, the word heaven that's used there in the Greek is the word uranos. Um, I've got a slide up for, of it for you here. And so when he says that the heavens will pass away, it can point to one of two things. Either it's talking about the sky and all the things visible in the sky, the stars, the planets, or the visible material world. So he's either talking about the heavens, as in like the sky and everything in it, the material world is going to pass away. Or he's talking about the eternal place, the eternal abode of God, the abode of, of those who are eternal. And so he's thinking more of the spiritual realm. So which of the two is Peter referring to here? Well, I don't think Peter's talking about the destruction of heaven. I shared with you just a couple of weeks ago about how the Lord Jesus took those who were in the, during the age of the law, who were in Abraham's bosom or in paradise, and transitioned them into a new place that Jesus created for them, a place called heaven. So I don't understand why Jesus would be destroying the place that he has just created for, for, for you and I, for, for eternal, uh, those who are in Christ. Um, it seems more likely, rather, that he, as we read through this passage, that Peter is describing a complete reset of the material world. So when he says heavens, he's thinking of the, the visible universe, the world above. Still in verse 10, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, the word that is translated heavenly bodies there, I've got another slide for you here, is a different Greek word, and it's translated heavens or heavenly bodies, and it is the Greek word stoikeion. Um, in my opinion, it is a bit unfortunate that the translators of the ESV used, rendered stoikeion as heavenly bodies. Um, really, this word uh, more indicates, it, it's basically talking about basic fundamental elements. 
Um, this would be, we might think of the elements like gold or silver or iron, things that people of the first century would have been very familiar with. Um, and so the building blocks, basic building blocks of material, of the material world, um, not necessarily the, you know, in an atomic level, they weren't thinking like that, but just the stuff that we use to build other stuff with, so the fundamental elements. Also, this word can be used to talk about basic fundamental elements of an idea, as such as a philosophical concept, well, all the different things that go into building that philosophical concept. And so I think here, therefore, that this should be translated instead of heavenly bodies. I think that it should be translated as elements because, again, Peter has in mind the dissolution of the material world. He's not talking about the dissolution of ideas here. He's talking about the dissolution of the physical world that we see. Now, just so you know that, again, I'm not out on some theological limb all by myself. When you flip over to the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which used to be the old Holman Bible, it's a newer translation that's come along, and I'd recommend it to you. It's pretty solid. Uh, the NIV, the KJV, and the, um, not the NRSV, anyway, one of those other Vs. Um, they, uh, they all render this as elements. So I don't know why the ESV writers did this on this occasion. They did. So we're going to move forward with verse 10, rendering that as, uh, as elements rather than as heavenly bodies. Um, if you skip forward to verse 12, what you find in verse 12 is a mirror of what he's just said in verse 10. I mean, he's almost repeating himself in verse 12. Let's take a look at verse 12. Peter says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God... Because of which the heavens, there's the word uranos, will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies, or elements, stoicheion, will melt as they burn. And then Peter puts in there an exclamation point. Peter then says in verse 13, But according to Jesus' promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which, righteous, in which righteousness dwells. Notice the plural form of the word heavens there. He doesn't say waiting for a new heaven he says we're waiting for a new heavens. Again, referring to this disillusion of the material, visible realm in which we live. The stars, the planets, all of that. Um, now, let me ask you something. Does, and, and having seen those verses just from a, a cursory you know, a survey of those verses, does it seem to you like Peter is describing a localized event? Or does it seem to you like Peter is talking about the end of the world? A global event. I think just at a cursory reading, it seems like Peter's talking about a global destruction here. That just seems to be what's in view. That seems to be what jumps off the page at me as I just survey this, as I just read this initially. Well, for us at first reading, again, this does sound like a global disaster. However, for Peter's first century audience, they would probably have heard this differently than you and I hear this. And so I got two more insights with you that will help us to hear this the way that the first century person that Peter's writing this to would have heard this and understood this. So let me share those with you. Here's the first one. Peter says, end of verse 10. He says that the earth and the works that are, on it, that are done on it will be exposed. Now in the Greek word, the word that's translated there, earth, and remember in verse 13, he also says a new heaven and a new earth, right? So he's using this word earth. The Greek word that's translated there is the word gain. I think I've got a slide for you here on that. The word literally means dirt. Gain means dirt. It's translated in many of our English Bibles as earth. But it's not thinking, it doesn't have in view the whole globe. It has in view, rather, dirt. 
um, for the first century uh, person, when they used the word gain, they were thinking of, when they heard the word gain, they were thinking of a specific patch of dirt. For example, for our modern audience, if I was to say to you the big apple, what am I talking about? Am I talking about an apple that was grown in the North Georgia mountains somewhere? No, we're talking about New York City, right? We're talking about a city that you and I would be very aware of. And so it's just the same when we talk about the word gain, we're talking about in the first century, they heard something different than you and I hear. What they heard was the Fertile Crescent. I've got a map for you here. Um, and this shows the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent was an area of arable soil. That is, it was good for farming. It was good for planting stuff in. You could grow crops there. You could grow uh, you know, olive trees in this area. It extended from the northern part of the P Persian Gulf all the way around the desert, forming a crescent moon shape, and then down into northern Egypt. And so when they heard the word gain in the first century, especially in this area, they would have thought of the Fertile Crescent, the specific dirt, the dirt of this area. Um, and so, you, again, you put these two together, this crescent, uh, it's the fertile area, the area of, of, of that's arable soil, along with the, the crescent moon shape, and you get the fertile crescent. In, Bi in Bible times, they had a word that folks used to refer to the entire globe, to the whole world, and it was the word cosmos. Um, it's where we get our word cosmos from. Um, the writers of the Bible use that word in John chapter 3 and verse 16, where they say, for God so loved the cosmos, the whole thing, that he gave his one and only son. Um, and if the writer here, if Peter, had in mind the whole thing, then he would have used the word available to him to refer to the whole thing. But instead he uses a very specific word, a word that had specific meaning to his audience in that day in the first century, and he uses the word gain. Um, <clears throat> everybody still with me? Okay, I'm giving you a little bit of a, a Bible class lesson here, but anyhow. Um, which, by the way, let me just say, I was talking to Terry a couple of weeks ago and just complimenting you all and how, how nice it is to be able to, from my perspective, to just unload everything that I know, and it's not a whole lot, but just to give it to you, both barrels, right? Week after week after week, and I, I know sometimes it feels like it went up there. I don't know. But in any case, I appreciate you all uh, eager for that. Not every congregation in the world would want that. Not every congregation out there would be interested in learning the deeper truths of Scripture. And so I just appreciate y'all so much being willing to week in and week out uh, receive that. Um, right? Give yourself a hand. I think that's great. Um, let me, that's all right. You, know, you can give yourself a hand later. Um, let me, there you go. Um, let me reread verse 13 now, inserting what we know. Verse 13. But according to Jesus' promise, we are waiting for new sky, right? According to Jesus' promise, we are waiting for new sky and new for a new fertile crescent. That's what we're waiting for. So I'm going to ask you again, is Peter describing a local event of cataclysm or is Peter describing a more global disaster? Which does he have in view? You say, okay, I see where you're going with this, Gordon, but... Uh, and I see the reference to, but what, what about that reference to the sky burning up? He says the sky is going to dissolve and everything's going to get burned up. I mean, how, what do we, how do you account for that? That's a good question. Um, and that's my second insight. Flip over to Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Um, here the author John is describing a very similar time of cataclysmic destruction. And John writes, Revelation 6 and verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. 
verse 13. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. So you think about this, the fig tree getting shook and those figs just dropping down to the ground. He's saying the same thing is going to happen with the stars. Verse 14. The sky vanished like a scroll. And it was all like being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Well, it sounds very familiar to what Peter's describing here, Second Peter chapter 3, doesn't it? Um, it's just that John seems to offer more details, that John seems to describe the same event, but with uh, increased information uh, that Peter doesn't offer us. John says in verse 13 that the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Verse 14, he says that the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. Sounds like the sky, sounds like the heavens to me. We're all set ablaze. And we would all agree that if this actually happened, that life on earth would be uninhabitable. Correct? I mean, sky's gone, atmosphere, no more oxygen, we're just a rock hanging out here in the middle of space, that life on earth would be uninhabitable. Um, Well, let's keep reading, because apparently people actually do live or continue to live on the earth during this period. So the skies roll up, and then the next thing that happens is verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the cave and out amongst the rocks of the mountains. And then their dialogue continues. Well, we've got a problem here. I mean, if the atmosphere just burned up and if the, the mountains dissolved and the islands and all this kind of stuff just went away, then how could anybody in the aftermath of that Armageddon, still be running for mountains, still be running to caves and sucking in oxygen and breathing and living. So how do we account for that? Well, the answer is very simple. It's because these verses are of a style of literature called apocalyptic literature. I've got a definition for you here of what apocalyptic literature is. Apocalyptic literature always uses hyperbole. It always uses fantasy-style, grand imagery by design. That's the way apocalyptic literature is intended to be received. It gives imagery of annihilation and of fiery punishment. And this is meant to drive home the point that God's judgment is coming. So when we read Hebrew apocalyptic literature, it is designed to inform its readers that God's judgment is coming. It's never designed to you know, pull out every single detail that the writer is presenting and taking those literally. For example, R.C. Sproul years ago was having a debate with Hal Lindsey, and Hal Lindsey was accusing R.C. Sproul of not taking the Bible literally. And R.C. Sproul said to him, well, Mr. Hal Lindsey, who was, you know, he sees, reads these things, and I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with The Late Great Planet Earth. That book came out a long time ago. But he said to him, he said, well, you're accusing me of not taking the Bible literally. He said to take the Bible literally is to understand apocalyptic literature from an allegorical perspective. That's what it means to take it literally. Because apocalyptic literature is hyperbole by design. It is grand imagery and fantasy by design. It's designed to drive him a point that God's judgment is coming. And then he said to Mr. Hal Lindsey, he said, he said, being that we're talking about taking the Bible literally, he said, I thought that you, you know, you said you were a literalist. He said, when the Bible talks about these giant locusts with heads of demons, shouldn't we be talking about giant locusts with heads of demons instead of helicopters, Apache helicopters? You think about that, but it'll come to you later. 
All right, so first century Jewish audience, that is who Peter's writing to. A first century Jewish audience, when they hear the biblical author say things like, the sky will pass away in verse 10, and the elements will be burned up and dissolved, they don't take the author literally. They hear that as, as apocalyptic literature. And so rather than take that um, as, like we might think of it, as we read it, they would see that rather as an indication Primarily, this is what, what Peter's trying to say to us, is that God's judgment is coming. Now, let me ask the question again. Um, in saying that to his audience, waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, is Peter describing a localized destruction, the destruction of Israel, or sorry, and of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or perhaps is Peter describing a global event, the end of all things? What I hope to do next week is to examine in close detail the passage in Matthew chapter 24 that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then to hold that up against 2 Peter chapter 3, these couple of verses that we just read, and then to hold that up against 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which we looked at last week, which is talking about the end of time and the return of Christ, and just see that by comparison, which of these does Peter more likely align with? Uh, But again, that's next week. Um, so another cliffhanger for you. All right, let's stop there and ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, you know, I know some people who are really into this kind of stuff. Like I see their posts on online and I see them, you know, they seem to always be talking about the different blood moons that are coming up and they're, they're counting days and trying to recalculate things. And they think it's Jesus is coming back here, but then it doesn't come back. And then they think he's coming back here. And people who are just really, really into this kind of thing, I get that. Um, however, I'm trying to get the bills paid, <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to get my kid through third grade, and, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to get the other one off to basketball practice, so what practical difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, if I was to tell you that the stock market was going to plummet below, let's say, 20000 by June of next year, um, God forbid, But if I was to tell you that that was a guarantee, that is going to happen, would that not be good information for you that you could act on? It's guaranteed it's going to happen. Would that not stir you to begin making some decisions about getting into more of a cash position or to moving your money into CDs or into uh, bonds or something like that that's a little bit more of a safe investment? Of course it would, because that would be the smart and the prudent thing to do. That If you knew that this was going to happen and it was coming up in the future, then you would act upon that. Um, If I was to tell you that in Oconee County, oil was going to be discovered under this ground, and that anybody that owned land in Oconee County next year was going to become fabulously wealthy because of the oil deposits that were discovered, what would you do? What would this smart and prudent thing be to do? Well, you would leverage yourself, leverage everything you have in order to acquire as much land as you possibly could so that you could prepare for when this time uh, was coming, for when the oil was discovered. Well, this is essentially what Peter's doing with his audience. Um, He's telling them of events that are in their future, guaranteed events. He says to them, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? He says, since you know that this world's going away, what sort of people should you be? Um, 
Friends, that's the question that we should be asking ourselves. We know about the return of Christ. We know about this world and that it's not the end of all things, but that eternity lies beyond. We know some things about the future, and because we know some things, that should impact how we are living in the present. Jesus answers this question for us. He says, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, knowing what you know, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal verse 21 for where your treasure is there your heart will be also jesus is saying look friends this world is not the final stop on the bus this world is not our final destination there is life beyond and so in light of that fact knowing what we know knowing that this world is, not, is going to come to an end, knowing that there is life beyond the grave, that ought to impact our priorities and our actions in the life that we have here and now. And friends, Jesus is not just talking about money there. He's talking about our conduct. He's talking about a life of lived of obedience to the Lord. He's talking about sharing Christ with lost friends and loved ones. These are all ways that we can store up treasures for ourselves in heaven. He's talking about our prayer life. He's talking about devoting ourselves to study of God's word. He's talking about becoming the kind of person that when people interact with us, they experience Christ's likeness. And friends, when we live like that, when we pray like that, when we study like that, and yes, when we give like that, Jesus says we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Peter is trying to encourage his audience to live with eternity in view. Again, he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Um, during my seminary years, I had a, a job. I worked full time and I would drive from the little town where I was doing school and where I lived up into the big city of Lexington and Lexington had, I don't know, half a million or so people there, and it had a big downtown area, and I was working at a hospital in the downtown area as a security guard, and I would work night shift so that when I'd go home, I'd get a little sleep, and then I could get up and go on and take afternoon classes and then start the whole thing over again the next day. My post at the hospital was at the front door. I had a little, I had a little clip-on tie. Pop those things off so nobody can wrestle you around. Um, I had a little walkie-talkie that I would walk around with, and people would be chatting in that through the evening. And I uh, wore gray pants and a, I don't know, some kind of Oxford blue button-up. I don't know, whatever it was. Um, so that was my role. I was, I was sitting at the front door, and it was a great job. Um, again, I worked uh, in the wee hours of the morning, um, wrote lots of papers, while I was sitting there, it was a great job to have for a seminary student because I could do all my work and do all my reading while I was sitting there. Uh, things were quiet. However, the other side of working at the front door of a downtown hospital, especially in the middle of the night, is that it is like Halloween all year long. <laughs> I can remember one night a guy came walking in in his underwear. Yes, that is right. His tidy whitey underwear. It was about 12 inches of snow outside on the ground. He had on his tidy whitey underwear and his socks, which, of course, you know, you wouldn't want to leave home without your socks. 
Another time, a guy drove his car up to the front door of the hospital and literally ran into the building where I was sitting. He was having a heart attack. Call 911 next time, right? I saw lots of families in crisis. I saw families who were not getting along because of the crisis that was happening in their lives. I interacted with families who had loved ones who were upstairs fighting, literally fighting for their lives. I had families who had just experienced loss. They were coming into the, into the facility, just having gotten a terrible phone call and being able to greet them and usher them where they needed to go. I had co-workers who were going through divorce. I had co-workers who tried to commit suicide. I had co-workers who were struggling to start a family. My point is there were lots and lots and lots of human need coming in and out of that door uh, at those wee hours of the morning. I could have said, I got papers to write. Because <laughs> I did. I had lots of work to do. Uh, or, I'm, you know, I'm just not feeling up to it tonight. Or, uh, you know, I don't feel qualified to talk about and deal with the particular situation that you're, you're engaged in right now. You know, but every night before I'd go into work, I'd get down on my knees and I would pray and I would pray and I would pray and I would ask God to do something in my heart to make me into the man that the people who were going to be coming in and that, out of that door that night needed me to be. Because I couldn't be him. I needed the Lord Jesus to do something special in my heart. Friends, I was making $7.25 an hour. Remember those days? I was poor as dirt. <laughs> but I was rich in the Lord. You know, human need is everywhere around us. People going through all kinds of stuff. And it is so easy to get caught up in papers that we have to write and the agenda that we have in that moment and our feelings of being unqualified or feeling just too drained to deal with this. But friends, knowing what we know, that our eternal home sets beyond this world, what sort of people ought we to be? You know, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy trying to satiate the temporary man. Friends, we know some things. We know. We've been given an insider's look into the future. We have read the last chapter of the book. And so knowing what we know, let us live in such a way as to produce treasures in heaven. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for giving us just a fresh glimpse of what our lives can be and of what our lives need to be about. Lord, uh, we ask that in these moments of quiet communion, you would prepare us to be the person, to be the man, to be the woman, that the world we're going to meet outside these doors needs us to be. We can't do it of our own strength. For we need you to mold us, to shape us, to strengthen us, to make us wise, to give us patience from on high, 
to give us hearts filled with love that right now maybe feel a little bit empty. Lord, in these quiet moments, as we come around this table representing your broken body and your shed blood, fill us, fill us, Lord, with the capacity to meet, to meet and reach the hurts of the world around us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.